Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. When the Personal Becomes Political was recorded at the 2017 festival. Please enjoy Randa Abdel Fattah, Jane Caro and Clementine Ford in discussion with Ruby Hammond. Um, so let me introduce our absolutely wonderful um, panel uh, this afternoon. Uh, first off, we have uh, Jane, who's written an incredible eight books in eight years, the last eight years indeed, uh, the most recent of which is her memoir, Plain Speaking Jane. Before her entry into broadcasting and social commentary, she worked in advertising for 30 years. Uh, she's written on everything from education to uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Please welcome writer, speaker, and public education advocate, Jane Carrow. Rhonda was born in Sydney to Palestinian and Egyptian parents. She's a former lawyer, and while still a student at Melbourne University, she was media liaison officer for the Islamic Council of Victoria, which is what led her to writing uh, about Muslim issues and Islam in the Australian media. She's written about the occupation of Palestine, and she's written several books also, including her breakout YA novel, Does My Head Look Big In This?, and her most recent YA fiction, When Michael Met Mina, about two teenagers who meet at a refugee rally where they're protesting on opposite sides. Um, please welcome Rhonda Abdul Fattah. And she's the author of the best-selling feminist manifesto, Fight Like a Girl, and a columnist, my fellow columnist at Daily Life, um, where she's gained a massive following for her fiery and razor-sharp commentary on feminism, especially her takedowns of male violence against women, rape culture, and the social policing of women's bodies. Uh, please welcome the bane of man babies everywhere, Clementine Ford. So our session today, when the personal becomes political. So I want to start off by asking, as women, does our personal become political or is it always political and we just become aware of it? I will throw that to anyone who wants to answer first. I think as women, the personal is always political. But I think it's actually almost exclusively for women and other members of outgroups, people of colour, um, the LGBTQI, it, it, those are the people for whom the personal is always political. If you're a member of the norm, if you're a white, straight man, by and large, your personal life can be separated from the political. For example, imagine if Hillary Clinton had had five children by three different husbands, um, was renowned for speaking about grabbing men by the penis, um, who, uh, you know, had done and said any of the things that Donald Trump had done and said in his life, she would never, ever have been considered as a viable candidate for the president of the United States, and indeed had Barack Obama um, done any of the things or said any of the things that Donald Trump has done and said, there is no way he would have been considered um, a reasonable um, candidate. But because Donald Trump is a white, straight, rich man, uh, people argue that his personal life is separate, and somehow he 
can um, be divested of his personal um, experiences and ways of behaving. Not in my view, I have to say. Um, can I, can I just, hmm. Sorry, just before I forget that point, just interrupt you as well to say that it's not just about what's done in your private life as well. You know, f when, you t when you talk in this country about, when you hear talk in this country about the meritocracy that we apparently live under, um, which is always an argument prosecuted in the main by men who are not adversely affected by the myth of the meritocracy. Um, when you kind of consider the fact that if Julia Gillard had assembled a cabinet of ministers of which 19 were women and only one was a man, no one in this country would be turning around and saying that this was just an act of selecting the merit. best people for the job. Yeah, they got ahead on merit. That men guys. were knocking on the doors of power, but they, they weren't quite in there just yet, but they were, don't you worry, they'll be coming up the rear pretty soon. There's a couple of very fine male junior ministers and assistants exactly. to ministers. Exactly, exactly. Really so, excellent men. So even on the flip side, even in a woman's professional life, as opposed to her pri private life, her professional life by other people cannot be divorced by her personal influences. Because people would have said of Julia Gillard that she was only doing that because she was pushing a sexist point. She was, she was getting one back at men. She was giving jobs for the girls, etc. So all, all of the things that men who have been supported to take leadership roles in this country and to inherit leadership roles in this country do on a daily basis. But for them, the personal and the political can be separated. Mm. And it's never assumed that, that they're operating with some kind of ulterior motive at hand or some kind of ulterior conditioning. I mean, even the fact that, like, I was thinking yesterday reading the story in the Herald Sun in Melbourne about um, the Daniel Andrews government is talking about uh, introducing critical thinking of fairy tales in the primary school system as a, as a means of trying to address domestic violence early on. The reasoning being that the inequality that's featured in many fairy tales leads to gender inequality, which is the thing that underpins domestic violence. But of course, if you hear it on the face of it, that like, well, we're going to change fairy tales because they make men hit, hit women, then most people don't understand that. But one of the arguments that always comes up when something like that is proposed, where, we, where a, a person pre presents a visionary idea, it doesn't even have to be a very good visionary idea, but just some kind of visionary idea that we change the way that we've done things for decades or generations or hundreds of years, and we try something new. People always turn around and they say, oh, you, this is just social engineering. You're just trying to socially engineer kids. As if somehow children aren't the product of social engineering anyway, as if, as if we don't feed them these messages. If, if, if gender's hardwired in, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be boys, why do we need to have pink eyes and blue eyes? If it, that's right, then we don't have to colour code the court toys. The kids will just go straight for them because, as we're told, boys like trucks, girls like dogs. It's just natural. When I think about this sort of false dichotomy between the personal and political, um, it sort of obscures for the white straight, um, you know, middle class men the notion that that their lives ha are inherently political. Their privilege is a, is a function of politics. Their, the fact that they don't have to think about this dichotomy between the personal and the privilege is a political um, position in itself. And I think that 
the people who are often sort of trying to um, think about and tease through these issues of, you know, where where is the line between my own private life and, and how much the political realm impinges on me, are the people who are affected most by decisions and by political discourses and the people who, who do have to think through these things. But for, for you know, white, straight, um, you know, men, this is something that doesn't, they don't have to work through. And this is most apparent to me, um, you know, when growing up as an, you know, Australian, Muslim, Palestinian, Egyptian, which was, you know, it's a huge, uh, you know, it's a lot of identity hyphens there. And <laughs> but, um, you know, I think my sort of awareness and political consciousness was really formed um, in 1991 when I was in year seven and the first Gulf War happened and suddenly my identity um, as an Arab, as a Muslim was no longer um, a description, it was an accusation. And that for me was the, f the first time I distinctly remember that my life, my, you know, my, my own circle of friends, my school community was suddenly so much bigger than, than I could ever imagine because of what was happening around the world, because of public discourse. And I, I could see that, 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 you know, huge blur between the political and the private. And I think it's, it's people who are on the margins, like you said, Jane, people who are disadvantaged and, and um, aren't afforded the privileges um, of the majority that often have to grapple with this, with this tension between the private and the, and the political. Yeah, it's as, it's as if the, the, that straight white men in particular, their access to politics at a management level enriches their personal lives. That's where that connection is. Yeah. But the lack of access that other marginalised groups have to those powerful decision-making roles detracts from the personal freedom that we have. And that's how, clearly for everyone, the personal and the political is intricately entwined. It's just that for some people, it's in, entwined in a way that benefits them. Can I just also add quickly, one thing that also really frustrates me following on from that is that when a person, who, you know, like white straight man or even, you know, for example, um, interviewed in the media, it is assumed that if they're talking about a political topic, that they are able to keep their personal, you know, um, biases and, and background and, um, you know, their personal baggage out of it. But when we come in um, on the margins and are, and are going to contribute to a discussion, we are explicitly told, and I have emails, please keep the discussion to the, you know, um, to, you know, to keep your own personal religious views out of it, for example, or please, you know, refrain from commenting on this um, beyond the scope of this, you know, they, there's always these parameters given as though somehow the white straight male is not operating under the same sort of biases and um, social, socialization as I would be, but because I've got these extra identity hyphens, somehow I must be more biased. Yeah, he's able to remain objective yeah. oh, God, about fuck, the situation. I hate that word, objective, you know, this idea that they're just this neutrality. That's, that's yeah. right. But uh, I think there's something else too, and, it's, and it's, I think it's specific to women. Uh, I don't think it matters which kind of a woman you are, it's specific to all women. There is an ancient prejudice against women and power, wielding power. Um, and there's been a whole heap of research which basically says when you, um, the most famous research is the Heidi versus Howard experiment where they had a bunch of CVs that were identical except half said Heidi and half said Howard. And the um, people who were looking at these CVs for their survey were asked to rate Heidi and Howard on skills and likability and they were rated 
ha them the same on skills, which made sense because they were identical CVs, but the higher they rated Howard on skills, the higher they rated him on likability. So the more skillful he was, the more ambitious, the more he was seen as a success, the more likable he was. However, with Heidi, the higher they rated her on skills, the lower they rated her on likability. So the more she ambitious... She sounds like a bitch. That's right, she's honest. a bitch. <laughs> Cold, hard, selfish, wicked witch, seeking power Who's looking herself. after her children? Exactly. Shouldn't she be helping some man get to the top? Isn't that her job? Well, sorry, just on that, on that note as well, Good three of us on the panel have kids. Obviously, Jane, you're a grandmother as well now. And we ca it would be unavoidable for us to have the conversation about whether or not the personal is political without discussing motherhood and children and whether or not women are able to opt in or out of that what it means for them if they choose not to have children, if they can't have children, or if they choose to have children, etc. But no panel would be convened of men talking about political ideas in which it even occurred to them to talk about how their fatherhood impacted on their lives. I mean, unless it was this kind of a throwaway comment about, well, you know, my children are the best thing that ever happened to me and my wife takes such good care of them. Yeah. I'd like to... Ryan Gosling, I'd like to thank Eva Mendes for taking care of yeah. the kids at home so I could make this amu amazing movie and win an Oscar for it. Yeah. Well, that's, like, that's the... It's, it's the way society structured is that uh, we, well, we, being, being women, uh, are the automatic caretakers, um, primary nurturers for, for the children. So any way that you can get work outside of that is a bonus almost. And you can be looked at as some sort of superhero or, you know, supermom, how does she do it? But it's something that's kind of on you to do as, as, as a bonus. And in lots of cases, people... Sorry, I've recently had a baby, as has Randa, so I'm very passionate about this topic now. By so if I'm cutting people <laughs> off too much, just tell me to shut up. But in lots of cases, the only way that women are able to get that bonus on the outside is if they can justify that that bonus alone will cover the cost of the childcare. Yes. And so later, the private school fee. Yeah. So you have, so you have, you have couples who, who are both the parents of the child, um, and it happens, I think, more in heterosexual parent relationships, where the possibility of her going back to work is floated, but they say, well, you know, she was gonna go back to her job, but her salary barely covered the childcare. And it is, there's still a lot of people who say that because they don't realise that even if you combine your salaries, which I recommend against, but if you, even if you do that and it all comes out in the wash, it's still not her job's responsibility to make sure that the childcare is being covered so that she can go back to work. It's both of their responsibility to make sure that the child is being taken care of so they can both work. And in my house, the person who cooks the dinner doesn't have to clean it up. And I have always thought with childcare and child-rearing, <laughs> that that should be the way we run it. I cooked it, he brings it up. Good luck. Um, okay, so they're a bit... You know, we've already, we've discussed the, 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 the default, the new, neutral default of the, the white, straight, cis male, uh, and that women automatically, before we get into any other sort of hyphenated identities, are um, outside of that. Uh, 
at the moment, there are few identities uh, more politicized than, than uh, that of a Muslim woman. And this is something I want all three of you to have a chat about in a second. But I, I want, do want to start with, um, with you, uh, Rhonda. There's um, your teenage protagonist like you uh, in your, your, your first book, Does My Head Look Big, big In This, uh, wears a headscarf and deals with the accompanying uh, bigotry of being a, a visible Muslim girl. Now, I, I grew up uh, Muslim as well, and I, you know, I come from a, you know, a, different, uh, a different Muslim tradition where the women have stopped wearing the hijab a few generations ago, and no one really knows why. I've asked it so many times, why did we stop? But no one really knows why. Different theories, which I won't get into, so it's not about me. But um, when, you, uh, when you took off the, the headscarf for the first time, did you... Was there a marked shift in how people not just reacted to you, but, but how they uh, spoke to you, uh, assumptions about you as a person, your intelligence, etc.? Et yeah, so um, I decided to wear the veil when I was 13. I was in year seven, and it was part of that sort of... Um, it wasn't a political decision, it was a deeply spiritual decision because that political consciousness in Year 7 with the first Gulf War, um, the way that I was able to deal with the racism um, that I was experiencing was to turn back to my faith and to, to develop a sense of awareness about who I was and my identity. So I made that decision, in fact, against the wishes of my family. They were firmly against me wearing the veil because they were so worried about the consequences. I was attending an Islamic school in Melbourne and we had, you know, arson attack on the school where half the school was burnt down, regular, regular graffiti, go back home terrorists and wog spray painted. We had a pig's head thrown in the office window we had to remove the name of our um, school from the school buses so it would, you know, there would be no vandalism. So they were quite worried about what the response would be, the backlash, but I insisted that this was my own decision and I wore it until I was 17 year 12 um, and the reason I took it off then was I wanted to be a lawyer and I had friends who were explicitly told in job interviews if you take it off you'll get the job so it was it was really um, a decision based on fear that I wouldn't be able to um, fulfill my aspiration to be a lawyer with with the hijab on and of course there were there was a notable shift in a lot of things um, in terms of, of my own sense of compromise and feeling a bit guilty about that and a bit um, that I'd sold myself out, um, the feeling that, a, a little bit of a um, feeling that I could have the freedom of anonymity so that I wasn't a walking um, ambassador for 1.3 billion Muslims, that I didn't have to suddenly be um, an expert on the Middle Eastern politics as a 13 or 14 year old, you know. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this assumption that suddenly I was free of the assumptions either in people's gaze or in people's direct questions, you know, are you forced, is, is, your, is that man your um, husband when it was my father, um, you know, yeah, the really creepy stuff like that. So yeah, there was that sense that I was no longer having to deal with that. Yeah. Um, so just on that point of, of you, you taking it off and feeling a, a little bit free, um, one of the things that I'm starting to notice as, you know, as I said, I'm coming from, you know, a, 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 a tradition where we, I just never grew up with it. It was just not something that, that, that we did. Um, now, what I'm now founding, because this is also politicised, being Muslim, being a Muslim woman uh, especially, is that people are taking me less seriously um, uh, as a Muslim because... Well, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've straight off said that I personally don't, you know, don't practise anymore, but my 
I, I still do all, a lot of the, the you know the cultural mm. and uh, and religious celebrations with my family because a lot of people in my family are still are, are deeply spiritual. Um, but because you know we, we're with this like tiny minority and we don't have a lot of the visible markers, there's this sort of sense. And I've gotten literally been told this by both the uh, you know white allies and by uh, more uh, you know mainstream, I guess, uh, uh, Muslims is that we, we are outside of that, and you you you're you're, you're either you're too Westernized or you're not uh, Muslim enough. You you un, you can't speak about this. So. There's, this, there's definitely this sense of um, we don't, uh, by all means, I, I feel a lot spared of having to wear the visible signs of it and growing up as well, but in some ways it's like, oh, I, I feel like we're left on the outer or altogether. So, th so that's another sense, this, this idea of not, uh, you're not uh, different enough to fit in. Um, but you also it, get within. Sort of, I also get, I, I didn't want to dwell on that because I know this is about yeah. you, but it was just something I've yeah. been thinking of. But I just wanted to add the, the one thing that frustrates me about um, people's responses to me being Muslim without the veil, and the reason I don't wear it now is very private and um, has nothing to do with why I took it off. Um, but what frustrates me is, oh, you're moderate. Oh, you're not religious. Um, and I'm deeply religious. I do, like, like, I'm pretty hardcore. Like, you know, yeah. I fast, I pray five times a day. Yeah. Um, I just want know. to thank you, because you just summed up what I was <laughs> rambling, trying to say, is that we still have this idea that you can tell how spiritual, how devoted, and how much of a real Muslim someone is by looking at them. Yeah. Um, and, and it's obviously not true. For the people, um, for the outsiders, particularly mm the Western left, mm. the Western non-Muslim left, who are caught, and I'm not offering any kind of sympathy because some of the ways I've se that I've seen them behave towards you, Ruby, are horrible, but who are caught in this position of wanting to be supportive to Muslim people and not contribute to Islamophobia, but at the same time, you know, one of the things that people quite often who are detractors of feminism say to me is, well, why don't you care about women in the Middle East? As if, like, as if that's just the one... That's how you name that problem, women in the Middle East, you know. And also not taking into account the fact that there are multiple feminist organisations who are run by women in those regions that they know nothing about, that they've taken no time to find out anything about, that they certainly don't donate any money to. But what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that an unveiled Muslim woman in the eyes of a Western person challenges their idea of the liberated Muslim, the intellectually liberated Muslim woman. Because we all know that the first victims of Islamophobia are women anyway, you know. So, the, so all of this sort of, you know, double speak about how will we oppose Islam because of the way that they treat their women and yet you're ripping hijabs off on trams and, and calling Muslim women terrorists in front of their children. You obviously don't care about Muslim women, but they like the idea that Muslim women are oppressed because it means that they can look at their own actions towards women in the West and say, well, it's not really oppression because we don't oppress them like that. And so I think that that's partly why they struggle to wrap their head around the idea of a woman who embodies everything that they associate with being with liberation, which is that you can wear whatever you want. I mean, I don't really understand why being able to kind of participate in capitalist ideals of beauty yeah. is necessarily liberation anyway. Plastic surgery is so liberating. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, it's really interesting. I, just as you were talking, it struck me that we still... Uh, 
spend a, an inordinate amount of time um, policing culture via women's dress. Uh, um, many, a few years ago I went on a holiday and we did a stopover in Malaysia and we went into this hotel that had this fantastic food court down the bottom and Malaysia is a Muslim country so an awful lot of people from Muslim countries go on holidays in Malaysia and a whole lot of Australians do and Americans so it was, this food court was just like a, 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 a United Nations of people from all over the world and what struck me was every single man in there was dressed exactly the same. They were wearing exactly the same clothes, I mean give or take some of them were in a dusty red as opposed to a blue or a grey or a green, but pretty They're much... They're all three-quarter length shorts. Shorts, exactly. That's what they were wearing. But the range of dress of the women went from tiny little shorts and spaghetti strap, you know, singlet tops to the full, you know, veil, gloves, the, right the way every permutation. And I just thought... This is fascinating. I have no judgment over what women wear. I'm, I'm not a fan of the full thing. I just, I'm sorry it makes me feel claustrophobic, but I also believe that the state should have absolutely nothing to do with women's choice of clothing, regardless of what that is. That is entirely up to them and they choose what they want to wear. But it was fascinating to me to see culture and something, it was women being used to communicate something and men not, and I think that's so apropos to the personal being political in terms of women in particular. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely, that, and that's something that's yeah, been coming up for me quite a bit um, recently. But bef uh, what I did want to ask about this, this whole Muslim women, why don't you go to the Middle East? Like, it's something that keeps coming up. Um, and, I, and I have my own theory about, about how to answer to that, um, how a to to whether it's our place um, to be. Um, you, I've got it written down here. How do we continue to push forward for our own rights, uh, even though there are places where women have more, more legal um, and social challenges than we do? And b, how do we stand with and support struggles of women in other places without? speaking over them, speaking for them, and without being, you know, white or slash Western saviours? Well, what I've tried in recent years to do is um, look to what work can be supported in other regions. So rather than being, you know, rather than sort of storm, and obviously physically I can't storm into a country and, and do any saving, but rather than even like, talking about, well, this is what we should be doing, this, that, and the other, and, and removing that agency from women who, who in particular places already have the oppression of so little agency as it is, that they definitely don't need the patronisation of other people saying, well, this is what we need to do for you. Um, so looking for the work that's already being done and finding out how it can be supported, and that support might be financial. I mean, all organisations need money, but it might also just be in my capacity as a writer, signal boosting that work and letting mm. other people know about it. Um, the other thing that I think people... What was the first bit of your question? I just start well, with the second the, bit. The, the, the reason people say that, right, they don't care about the no. struggles of oh, women no, sorry, somewhere I was, else. I was going to so say So what they're asking, they, they're trying to shut you down and say yeah. your, trial, your, your they, issues are trivial. How do right. we say, listen, we understand some women might have a, great, a harder time for whatever reason, but you're our always, struggles matter too. Find, you're always going to find someone mm. somewhere that has it worse off than you. I mean, there are women in 
countries, there are women in Pakistan who are subjected to acid attacks, not because the men in Pakistan who perpetrate domestic violence against women have any particular, like, fondness for acid necessarily, but it's because acid is really cheap. Mm. And it's a really cheap way to maim and mark a woman in the same way that women in Australia are maimed and marked, but just using different methods. But just because women have acid thrown on their faces in, in a country like Pakistan where acid is really, really cheap, doesn't mean you can't find a country where even worse things are happening. So do you stop caring about you can't. acid you, attacks? You, it's, it's, it's a rubbish argument because the point is all of us live in the world in which we live. And what each of us needs to do in our own world is do what we can to increase the sum of human happiness and decrease the sum of human misery. And wherever you are, you can do things that do that. And you can't take on the whole world. Nobody can. And it is arrogant um, to march in and say, hey, all you women over there living like this, you shouldn't do it. And I would not presume to do so. I, like you, will always promote people like Mona el who I think is really um, quite remarkable in her um, writings and speaking and bravery and courage, or um, also Taslima Nazarene, who I have an enormous amount of time for, who's a Bangladeshi feminist and atheist. Um, and, you know, I just promote them and appreciate them and I'm very interested in what they have to say and many other women who I read. But it, it's a rubbish argument to say you can't complain about this because that's worse. Um, I yeah, complain no one... about having a fucking cold and so... I'm quite entitled to do so, <laughs> I reckon. No one, no, one ever used the, um, no one ever used the fact that, you know, people are suffering famine in Africa as a reason to not complain about the fucking carbon tax and what it was doing to their electricity prices. And those same people are the ones who'll be like, what are you doing to help the women of the Middle East, you hypocrite? Yeah, I think it's really um, the, hi the idea of a hierarchy, hierarchy of suffering and pain um, as sort of uh, that legitimises you, you know, choosing one point over another and it just masks the fact that they just want to um, make excuses for their own misogyny here. Um, but I also, and I also think there's some, uh, an element of kind of um, a subversive element there of saying, you know, if you don't behave, we'll treat you the way that they're treated there. That's kind of sort of like a warning. Feel lucky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you should but, be grateful. But exactly. I think when it comes to this whole issue of um, this whole sort of narrative of, you know, look at the way women are treated in the Muslim world in the Middle East. Um, like, I've got a couple of things to say about that. First is, I'm not interested in speaking with people who have who continue to silence histories about the role, or well, the fact that Western civilization is built on colonialism, slavery, dispossession, exploitation of the global south. And when we obscure that link and that, that originary violence upon which our privileges um, are based and which means that the global south continue to suffer, then I know that it's not a genuine conversation that actually looks at historical forces um, that create and perpetuate the social conditions that we want to um, address now. Another thing is I'm not interested in a conversation with somebody who doesn't realise that you cannot build civil society and you cannot, you know, even start nation building and, and provide the sort of structures and, and um, you know, conditions to promote women women's rights when you're bombing them. So, you know, it's this whole narrative that completely divorces things like the, the fact that Western countries are so entrenched in the arms trade that they are arming the despots and autocrats that then go and 
prevent women from driving, for example, in Saudi Arabia. You're stealing my theory, but oh, no, sorry. no, no, please keep going. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's just so frustrating that there is just this total ignorance, like, like just total deliberate ignorance and, um, and erasure of history. And, and not just history, but also the fact that we are, we are completely complicit in the oppression that is happening there. Um, you know, just, just looking at it from my own point of view as a, um, as a Palestinian and women in Gaza who cannot even access, um, you know, treatment for their breast cancer because of the illegal siege on Gaza. And the fact that Australia is one of Israel's staunch allies and then dares to school Palestinians about women's rights. I mean, it's the hypocrisies that really, um, really show and, and what, what we mean when we talk about women's rights. And, and the fact also that, you know, the, the, the West, the global North, you know, it's you know, a quarter of the world's population and it controls four-fifths of the world's income. Um, you know, there's so much here. I mean, you trace the money in the end. I mean, that's really where it comes down to. And the fact is that we, we have it in our power to create and, and, and co um, contribute to conditions that will promote women's rights, but we have it too comfortable in the West to really address what, what is needed to do that. I mean, you, you're bombing Syria and then, you can, and then you turn around and say that women are oppressed by Muslim men. I mean, they've got you know, bigger issues on their, on their hands than you know, leaning in at work. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> it's how to survive and stay alive. For me, the icing on the cake with, on that point in, in terms of us selling, uh, selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, which is the world's biggest buyer of arms, by the way, uh, is that when our leaders, if they're uh, uh, women, like uh, women foreign dignitaries, uh, go there to enter negotiations with these, um, these uh, Saudi men, the Saudi royal family and the government, and they make a big brouhaha about them not wearing a headscarf. And yeah, we're gonna, you know, Theresa May was just there recently saying, well, I wanna show them what women can do. Um, so you're showing them that you can give them the bombs that's gonna fall on their heads and, and the, the providing the money that is used to oppress them. So um, yeah, it's that, uh, that link. There, there is, we can't look at what's happening somewhere else as completely divorced um, from ourselves. And, and one of, I think, what, what Rhonda is saying is the best thing that one of, what we can do is actually say, well, what is our role in this oppression? The, the oppression is not all cultural and religious. It's, mm. it's political and it's capital. And um, moving outside of the Middle East now as well, mm. there's something really... Uh, I mean, apart from the, the attitude of dealing with, and I'm using quote-unquote, dealing with the savages in saying, well, I wanted to show them what women are capable of. As if, as if the decision to oppress women in Saudi Arabia is not one that's been taken with a great deal of thought, in the same way that the decision to oppress women all over the world is not one, is one that's taken with a great deal of thought and per, um, perpetrated in multiple different ways every day from the bottom up to the point where, you know, even, even little children learn it. And so they keep... This, this particular form of social engineering is ongoing. Exactly. That this kind of constant way of pointing to other places as being a worse example of what we are and therefore you should be grateful for, what we, for how we treat you. There's always that underlying threat, you know, that we could do this to you, but we don't, so therefore you should... Show some gratitude to us. You wrote that very good piece that I read today where you said... Probably I wrote a lot of great pieces. <laughs> no, no, this is the only one I've no, found. No, I can't no. say that. Women, 
Women aren't allowed to talk themselves up, you know. Well, I'm talking you up. Um, I actually, I, read, I really liked your point about a good man is not a man who just does not do terrible things to women. So just because you don't hit women doesn't make you a good man. Um, and I was thinking about this idea, you, you should be grateful. We don't throw f acid on you, therefore you should be grateful. We could be doing it. We could be we doing don't. it, but we don't. And I think that that point you made so clearly is really important. I don't think that some men realise and I'm talking the ones here who, even actually the ones who quite benignly are nice to women in their day-to-day -day -day lives, don't think that they, you know, don't really go out of their way to make women feel uncomfortable. They don't, they don't really think that sexist humour is the height of comedy. Just normal, everyday guys. I don't think that even a lot of them really understand how frightening it can be to be a woman in the world. And how all of these different little things that happen to us and that happened to our girlfriends, that happened to our family members, happened to women that we read about, and also that we're warned about from such a young age, become such an intrinsic part of you that you're constantly on alert, even when you're not on alert. It's like, it's like the computer program is running and sometimes you have to engage directly with the program, but when you're not engaging with it, it is still running there in the background. Nina Fennell's wonderful exercise she does where she asks a mixed class of kids, she asks the boys, what do you do every day to keep yourself free, safe from sexual assault? And the boys all go, what are you talking about? And then she says, okay, thank you. Um, girls, what do you do every day to keep yourself safe from sexual assault? And they fill the board. But the most galling thing about that is that you can, you can run those exercises now, but the backlash will always try and find a new way to manifest itself. And so there might be a proportion of boys in that class who listen and go, holy shit, I had no idea that girls had to do that every day. And they'll find out more about it and they'll start to behave differently. But much more likely, and certainly much more increasingly now, there is a majority percentage of boys who become men, and men are certainly doing it too, who turn around and say, bullshit. That is, you're overreacting. Well, you're paranoid. There's something wrong with you. You know, why, why do you demonise men all the time? And then at the same time, as we all know, I'm not saying anything no one here knows, well, certainly not the women, when something does happen to us, because it always happens to us, it's never done to us, but when it's something happens to us, well, why, why didn't you take better care? Why, didn't, why were you out after dark? Why do you... Girls, you have to learn. You have to start taking more care of yourselves. When will you learn? And it's like we've been learning since we were old enough to be told to close our legs when we sit down. So we go from... <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that's, it's so infuriating. No, no. Then I, when, you say, when you say, "Well, this is what this is all the things that we do. This is what we've learned," we're then called liars. Yeah, because we, if you, if we talk about um, how unsafe we feel and are, we're accused of demonising all men, and the worst thing, as if it's worse to insinuate that that we are afraid of any man that crosses our path that night. I know I am. If, I, if it's night and I'm alone, I, I, I don't deny, like, my, I try as much as possible not to live in fear, but I like to walk out at late at night. But there's been quite a few times where I've heard, you know, heavy footsteps, and it's a man running. And I remember the first time I was, you know, in my early 20s, I think, and it was like 3 a.m., and, and I froze. I literally froze, and I thought, this is it. This is, this is my turn. This is, this is how it's going to happen. And, and, and I wasn't thinking thoughts of being killed. I was just thinking, oh, I'm 
this is my sexual assault that's going to happen now. Um, but, but if we talk about that, then we're, we're demonising all men. And uh, uh, But if something does happen, well, you know, why, why were you out at 3am? I was, you know, so it, it's deliberately designed so that we can't win. And the point is the onus is on us. I remember a friend of mine saying to me once that she had a similar feeling. And with the greatest of apologies to people in this room who will have experienced this already, but... She said that, you know, having that feeling when you're in a situation where it seems like a legitimately rational thought for you to have, is this how my rape happens? Yeah, that's, yeah, that was it. That was that thought. That was this. It wasn't even a question. It was this is... It wasn't. It was just, it was just a guy who obviously works um, late nights running to his truck and getting into work and driving off. And, but the relief... But that was what I thought. I didn't think it might happen. I thought this... Is but if it you, and if you explain that myself. story, if you explain that story afterwards to someone, yeah. like I said, you know, women are treated the world over like we're liars. Yeah. Well, you're probably just imagining it. You were overreacting. You're paranoid. How dare you? How dare you make exactly. him feel? Like, I shouldn't have to you, feel on the street like and, I'm and a threat. And why were you out at three a.m.? Yeah, but that's that's if it had happened, that is the question. That would then, it would be from you're too paranoid to you should not have been there in the first place. And the place, effect so. is that the whole. The, the, the way that the whole world is structured towards women, and, and again, like Jane said earlier, no matter what kind of woman you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your political position is even, the whole world is designed to gaslight the way that we feel, so that when we talk about our experiences, we're firstly told that we're not, we're not reliable witnesses to our own lives because we're not objective enough. Mm because we are paranoid, because we're hysterical, because we're trying to demonise men, whatever it might be. And so not, it's not even just the effect of other people silencing us, but then what ends up happening at a really young age for girls is that we all just start going, oh, I did, it. I did overreact to that. I, 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 am I imagining this? I'm probably imagining this. And so then we start participating in the grooming that's done of us or participating in the sexual harassment because we don't want to be seen to be that person that either has tickets on ourselves or who is being a troublemaker or who is seeing things that aren't there because the worst thing that then we can be called is crazy. But do you Give find also sorry, do you find also that the irony as well is that part of the stress of it is that you like when you're in one of those moments where you're on the train alone, there's a carriage alone and someone gets on, a guy gets on and starts talking to you, asking you the time, and you feel uncomfortable, you trust your instincts, but at the same time, you want to overcompensate for your paranoia by talking to yourself and thinking you're being stupid, you're going to make him feel uncomfortable, you're demonising him, and, and you start, you know, you, despite the fact that your instinct tells you don't talk to him, don't tell him what the time is, just shut it down, you feel guilty for feeling that way. And so you talk to him, and this, that, that's the stress that no man will ever understand, no, I, the I, irony of it. Because this is a writer's festival, I'm going to push an anthology. I'm just in the middle of editing, which is about exactly this. Mm. Because we've, we've asked women to contribute stories, some of quite serious... Um, what you, you feared happening and all women fear happening, right down to much more trivial like that kind of conversation. And what I've asked them to concentrate on is obviously tell us about the event, but it's not that the event itself is the point. How did you feel? What did you tell yourself? How did you silence yourself? Why have you never told this story before? What kept you silent? What kept you, in a way, colluding with whoever the um, creep was? Because it's exactly that. We kind of... Our own doubts about our own instincts and our own sanity, because we've been told that we're too paranoid, ends up being used by some predators as a method 
of getting us to collude with the behaviour. And that's what this anthology is all about. It's called Unbreakable. It will be out in the middle of the year. I'll shut up now, but I couldn't resist. Um, well, and I, I promise I'm not... It is relevant. I'm... This is in my book. Um, it's a writers' festival. We're no, but, but I make I make the point in my book that this is exactly what happened with the Jill Ma situation. You know, with Jill Ma was walking home at night. She'd had a few drinks, which was of course used against her later on in the court of public opinion. And Adrian Bailey started speaking to her on the street. And we've all been Jill Ma at that point, where we're like, I don't want to talk to this creepy guy. I don't want. I, I feel like he could be dangerous. I'm also drunk. I'm tired. I want to get home. My partner's expecting me. But she was being nice because the other thing that we've been taught to do is to be nice. And like Rhonda said, to question our own instincts about someone because we don't want to hurt a man's feelings. He's probably, he probably just wants to be nice to us, you know, and I don't want him to feel like there's something wrong with him. So she sat there and she would have had that conversation at the whole time feeling uncomfortable and like she didn't want to be there. And then, of course, she left and he followed her, and what happened, happened. And firstly, if we, don't, if we didn't train girls to be so nice all the time and to take everyone's feelings, but especially men's feelings, into account and to be able to say, on a public street, maybe it would have been more dangerous down the side street, but to be able to say on a public street to all the people walking past, this man is making me feel uncomfortable. Can, I, can someone please come and rescue me? I need help. Yeah. Without her feeling like... In her own head, clocking over, going, am I overreacting? Am, am I overreacting? Don't be silly. Don't be... You're being such a stupid woman. But also, if he had decided that it was too risky to follow her down Hope Street that night and she'd gone home and then she'd gotten on her Facebook account and she'd written something about how, ugh, this creepy guy stopped me last night and he wanted to talk to me and I just got a real bad vibe from him and luckily I got away but it made me really scared. So, you know, girls, be safe out there. Probably 95% of her friends would have been like, I'm glad that you're okay, Jill. Oh, that sounds really scary. Hope you take care of yourself. But there would have definitely been at least one person, two people, both of them probably guys, who would have said, just playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> but how do you know that there was something wrong? He probably just thinks that you're a pretty girl. You know, Can men not even speak to women on the street anymore? How will the human race survive? And that's what, that's how you create like this situation. Like a human race, we want to survive. Yeah. yeah, well, that's how you create the situations where women, if, if you are going to use any argument that women get themselves into these situations, it is because we have been so systematically trained through generations to question our own reading of a situation and to put a man's feeling of comfort ahead of our own sense of safety. And that is how we get ourselves into these situations because society has created the perfect mechanism for that to be the case. It almost brings us back to the beginning in the sense of men being a... Yes, but, uh, men being a... a, a uh, this uh, objective, perfect uh, default and it's up to us to negotiate um, around that. We, we, we're meant to mould ourselves yeah. around the norm, the bloke, the white man. I'm going to um, open up to the audience now. We're, we're in the last 15 minutes um, or so. And who's got the closest uh, mic? We've got down here. No mics? Oh, you'll just have to be loud. Um, I've got a bit I'll of repeat a don't feel sorry for yourself. No, that's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm a meek woman. Um, and you mentioned Theresa May, or Theresa May, sorry. Um, and one of the things that brought to my mind when we're talking about her going into the Middle East 
Legs it. Yes. Um, and it made me think of, well, look at what a woman can do. Yeah, be treated with absolute contempt by the media in her own country. I mm. would just like to hear your perspective on that. Look, I feel very strongly, and perhaps it's to do with the many decades I've been involved in this struggle, is that there is no right way to be a woman. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much advice you take. It doesn't matter how you try to change. You know, you can lower your voice, you can dress differently, you can smile all the time, you can try to be nice. You know, we follow all these instructions. If only you'd, if only you'd, we're told. But there is no right way to be a woman. There's no right way to be Theresa May. There's no right way to be Nicola Sturgeon. There's no right way to be Randa me, Clementine. There's no right way. So the great liberating thing about that is, you can be absolutely bloody wrong in your own unique and individual way. And imagine what would happen if every woman in the world just went, you know what, I'm fine, just the way I am. Fuck you, I'm not fixing myself anymore. But, but sorry, can I just also say on that that... Um, it's, the, it's about the hypocrisy, right? That, you know, you can't... The, the West loves to do that thing where they point their finger at other places. And they always homogenise the Middle East, you know, over in the Middle East, as if it's not made up of a series of different countries with completely different political frameworks and completely different cultural practices. Um, but, of course, like, the only, the only way that they would ever defend Theresa May from being a target of sexism is if she's present in a Middle Eastern country where they can look at and say, well, look at, look at what we let our women do. We let our women become a prime minister. What do you do, you sexists? And yeah. Oh, with Julia Gillard, you know, like serving a, a meal at a Liberal Party fundraiser and putting chicken on the menu and calling it a big red box. You know, and, but and we're so great to women in this country. But we also, with Theresa May, we mustn't forget, uh, less so with Nicola Sturgeon, thank goodness, she's been what is called glass-cliffed. And glass-cliffing is where um, if there's a terrible situation at the top, someone's going to have to do something that is an absolute shit sandwich. And so all the blokes stand back and go, I'm not, we don't want it to... Here you are, girl. You be Prime Minister. That'll be great. She's been glass-cliffed. Don't. Okay, um, who wants to take this one? I'll take this one. I feel like, firstly, I will say that I understand your defensiveness. I don't agree with it, but I understand with your defensiveness. 
I feel like you asked the question and now we've got the answer. I feel, I feel like you're being defensive and I understand it because I feel it sometimes too when I listen to arguments about racism because I sit there and I say, but I'm a good white person. Why should I have to be, why should I have to listen to all this stuff about white supremacy, etc., etc.? Now, that's just a little feeling that I have sometimes now that flares and burns because, of course, we're all programmed and conditioned to want to think of ourselves as good people and to feel indignant when someone suggests that we're not doing enough. But I think the important thing to do, and you can take this advice or not, is to sit in that feeling of, well, I feel like you're being biased or I feel like I, feel like I need to defend men or I need to defend white people or whatever, and ask yourself, why do you feel like you need to defend those things? Why is it more important for you to defend men in this scenario than to listen to the experiences of women on the stage and feel uncomfortable about them? Why is it more important for you to find and to, and to massage a situation out of this in which men come out a little bit better than, than we have painted them in your eyes so that you can feel a little bit less confronted by it than it is to sit there and just be confronted and say, wow, maybe we have a lot further to go. Because I don't think that... I think it's interesting that you repeatedly had to say, you know, I support equality, I support equality, and all of my friends do and my sons do, and maybe you do, but there's only so much you can do to support equality if you are unwilling to sit there in feelings of discomfort about how you privilege from inequality. And I think also... Um, It's one thing that men in discussions about patriarchy don't understand in the same way that people, racist people don't understand about racial structures is that the system doesn't care if you're a nice man. The, the point is it's not about individuals. It's about a system of patriarchy. It's not about the fact that you don't, you know, catcall a woman um, on the street. It's about the fact that you could be... I've, I've worked with plenty of lovely equal opportunity guys at a law firm, but they have all had better privileges at that law firm than me. I've met with, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, it doesn't care. Patriarchy doesn't care if you're a good guy. It's a system, and that's the system that we're struggling against, the structure, the power structures that do privilege men, and that mean that you can sit there and, no offence, but celebrate the fact that you and your sons um, are good to women, that you support equal rights, and somehow we should congratulate you on that, when that should be the default position. I know, but that's okay. the sense that we get. Uh, thank I, I want to say... You're right. We are biased. We are biased towards our own gender. And we're biased towards our own gender because for too long women have been left out of what is, after all, called his story. Um, which if doesn't indicate utterly the way that women's voices, experiences, etc., have simply not been heard. I don't know what does. One of the things I think is fascinating at the moment, and again we're at a writers' festival, is a lot of women are taking women in history and re-examining history from that point of view. Uh, for example, I launched last week um, a book about Bertha Lawson, married to Henry Lawson, and it brings to the fore his domestic violence, the way he treated her and their two children. And a lot of people got really upset because Henry Lawson's a, you know, a great poet and an Australian hero and a larrikin. But the thing is, his wife's experience of him was very, very different. Well, her experience of him is valid. We need to hear about it. Women's voices have not been heard. So yes, we are biased. 
past. It's the same as the argument about quotas for um, women in positions of power. I'm an absolute believer in quotas because I've seen the way they've worked for men. Because we've got to remember... <laughs> No, no, absolutely. We had a 2,000-year-old, 100% male quota. And, um, and if, you don't, if you don't believe that that exists, then you have to accept that what you do believe is that white men are just better at everything. Yeah, that, that's right. Either white men are better at everything, and not just white or men. Or something else has but happened. But in every culture, men have taken the reins of power. Okay. Either it's a 100% quota system or women are shit. That's sh there was someone up the and back, I think, yeah. while, while you're talking. Did someone up I the back? I just have something very, very, uh, that I think is important to say about that as well. And, and that, you, you know, we can get stuck in this kind of like men versus women. And I know that that's just acknowledging one single binary and gender is much more than that. But mainstream culture can get very stuck in this men versus women and battle of the sexes, blah, blah, blah. And I think that, you know, Rhonda, what you said about the system doesn't care if you're a good guy is true. I also don't care that you're a good guy. It's nice that you're a good guy, but I don't care that individual men are good, nice guys when the system is so heavily weighted in their favour and too many of those good, nice guys do nothing to redress that system. But I also think that what the system, what the, that whole narrative doesn't take into account is the fact that you push, you push back in that question about what you see as being the bias being represented on stage, and Jane says, yes, we're biased because we're women and we, and we have to, had to deal with history. But one thing that's not being acknowledged is that men are biased against women and men have supported each other to be the leaders of industry, to be the leaders of government, to be, to be the trendsetters, to be the... women out of education, to keep, out to of keep women out of power. No. And what women have done... Happened. What women have done and what women have been culturally conditioned to do is to support everyone but themselves first, most of all men. Women have been the ones who've done the unpaid domestic labour. They're the ones who are largely charged with performing emotional labour. You know, there was a really sadly depressing but wryly funny piece the other day about an academic, a male academic, who went through all these old academic texts and highlighted all of the acknowledgements in which these male academics had acknowledged my wife for typing up his book for him. In many cases, multiple times, and the only the only recognition she got amongst all these other names was my wife. Um, so women care about everybody because that's what we're supposed to do. And just sort of slightly tangentially to that, this is why I think that people are so terrified in the so-called enlightened West of having women in power, and and why you know I know Ruby, you've got very legitimate reasons for thinking that Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been the great saviour that many others do. Um, but in the battle between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the most qualified candidate in the history of presidential elections versus an actual circus animal. The least qualified. Um, and he still wins because I think at its heart, I think so many men and the women who've been conditioned to support those men and ought to support like masculine patriarchal ideals feel, well, the man's got our back. And the woman, we can't tell whose back she's got. You know, she's probably going to... She might put those 19 she's women in power. You know, she, we can't trust, even if our politics wildly vary from Donald Trump's, we can't trust that we'll be taken care of underneath that Clinton system. But the funny thing about that is that it also doesn't take into account the fact that Hillary Clinton would have been so well-trained in politics that she would have made sure that all of the men felt like they were being taken care of in some way, because that's what women do. 
<coughs> Do we have time for two more questions? Okay, I think I know you've had your hand up a while, yeah. I'll, re I'll repeat that for everyone, in case you missed it. How does our panel feel as women, as feminists, on about Ayan Hirsiali's last-minute cancellation of her tour? I might go. Oh, you go. Well, I've got a bit of an inside, you know, information on this because I was actually asked only a few weeks ago if I would actually be the interviewer for Ayan Hirsiali. Now, there were two reasons I couldn't do it. One was I was going to be here, and the other was they weren't offering me any money. Um, which I think is absurd. And another thing, women get asked to do an awful lot of things for nothing. Um, and so both of those things meant I couldn't do it. But what interests me is, then I got asked a second time through a different uh, way. And again, I have the same reasons I couldn't do it. So I'm kind of interested that only a few weeks ago they, were, they didn't have an interviewer. So I accept the uh, security... Uh, reason. I was at the 2012 Atheist Conference where she spoke and the security was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And I think it's a great... I don't believe in banning people. I think everyone should speak and, you know, you can react the way you want to, but let everybody speak. So I, I was sorry that she didn't come. But I suspect while security is part of the problem, I suspect organisation may have been another problem. Well, um, Ayan, is that on? Ayan, um, uh, in her interview with Hack, um, said that the, the Muslim women who had written the petition objecting to her coming um, were shrill lefty idiots. And I was one of those shrill lefty idiots. Um, and I'll give you a bit of insider information. Um, we, we as Muslim women didn't object to her coming to Australia. I don't, object, I don't want to ban anybody from speaking either, even though I don't think anything she's saying is original or is being silenced. We certainly hear that Islamophobic discourse on a daily basis. Um, the point is that we objected to the platforms that she is given because it's very... I mean, we should think about the fact that Ayan is a darling of the right and the left, you know, of the neocon, Islamophobic, war-mongering industry um, in America's right, and at the same time, a darling of the left liberals. There's something... There's a tension there that people need to interrogate a bit more closely. Um, we invited her, a group of Muslim women, to come and to a forum where we would talk about and, you know, in a very, um, you know, civil discussion, if she cares about Muslim women, then talk to Muslim women. Come and have a conversation with us. You choose the venue, bring whatever security you need to, and she declined. Because, frankly, Ayan doesn't care about Muslim women. We are not her audience. She could not give a damn about what we think. Because if she did, she would listen to our voices. And the fact that she would call us shrill lefty idiots when we wrote a perfectly reasonable, um, intelligent, nuanced, um, measured response to her vitriol, and it is vitriol, really shows that she doesn't care what we think, that she has no interest in our, in our struggles, and it is purely um, about, you know, a, a, 
about perpetuating that Islamophobic narrative, which, mind you, is very lucrative. Another, in, another example, several years ago, she came for the All About Women um, conference and in Sydney, and she was given the stage, and I spoke to the organisers, and I said, can we at least have it in a panel forum so that we can at least talk about this, have a conversation? Would you give a platform, that, uh, such a big platform, to somebody who wants to talk about Judaism being evil and Jewish women being brainwashed or Christian women I mean, the fact is these are highly vitriolic statements that, that just reduce women, Muslim women to a category, um, d completely dehumanise us, at least let us have a conversation. And I was given the option of being in the audience and making sure I would get the microphone in my hand at question time. That's how little value Muslim women have in a conversation supposedly about Muslim women. So I don't really care that she, was, that she didn't come. And I've, I think it came down to money. Um, she didn't sell as many tickets as they had hoped, and it was an organisational issue. And by the way, the security justification, it is Muslim women who feel the, the most insecure when that sort of vitriol is given that kind of a stage. When she spoke against Muslim schools, I was actually sitting in the foyer of a Catholic school about to give a talk when a friend who was on the petition called me and said, Ayan is coming after Islamic schools now. And I felt sick because my children attend an Islamic school. And I have been, drop, I've dropped them off at the school before and a car has driven past and said, go back, F off you, you terrorists. And that's, that's my experience at an Islamic school. And I'm actually the product of an Islamic school. And it was me who felt, God, what is the media going to be like now? So I don't buy that security. But I want to, I, I, on that point, I, I want to, as I think the question is, how do you feel as woman at the fact that a woman was essentially silenced? But I mean, I, I get that we've kind of think that it was more You're behind the scenes her. things than, than actual, than, yeah. than, uh, you know the security in this instance. However, no calling for her not to come. I do want to say uh, we can't deny she has security everywhere she goes, 24 mm. hours uh, a day, and we can't deny. Um, and you know, my question is to you, Rondo, because we are uh, uh, both Muslim from from different sects. However, I don't think it it really is. Um, it, I don't know what the right word is, but, but the, the, to deny that there is a problem that Muslims, whether they become ex-Muslims or whether they're Muslims who might disagree about certain things, there is a fear there and there is a danger because there is a sense that if we say the wrong thing, we will get harmed. And I feel that. I'm not going to deny. I, I, I'm very careful in, in, in what I say uh, and, and not just out of fear of being harmed, um, I still feel that Muslims are all my people, no matter what the sect, Arabs and Muslims. I, that is my history, and I grew up in that faith, and it is still my ethical framework. Everything I've learned about compassion and social justice, I got from my father, and he got that from his faith. So I, I, that, you know, I feel that, that, that kinship very, very strongly. However, I, I also feel that there, there is an element there that if we, by their own arbitrary standards, not, you know, not the, the faith and the scripture itself, by their own standards, if they decide as the keepers that we have said something that is worthy of, of being harmed, that they have the right to do that. And, and, and how can we talk about that 
because I, I can say this, but at the same time, I also completely uh, I, I disagree with, with a lot of Hersey Ali's approach. And I, and I interviewed her at that point, when she came out in 2012, by phone, before she got here. And she, she, was, she's, you know, she was quite mild-mannered and, 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 and seemed, I guess, quite nice. Uh, but since then, and at the time I still disagreed with her, but I didn't feel like she was, anything she had said was too far. But now I, I feel like she is getting more and more... Uh, you know, very vitriolic, very almost unhinged and very, very cruel in, in how she talks about Muslims in general, especially Muslim women. And, and I can say that, but at the same time, I, uh, I feel like there, there, there is an issue in, in, in things, the fact well, think, that, that she does need this 24-hour security. Well, I think um, the f it's terrible. I mean, it should be it go without saying, but no Muslim woman and many Muslim men I know would would think that it is a good thing that she needs 24-hour security. What I object to is that being thrown, you know, pu pulled over my head as, as a justification for her vitriol. Um, you know, th that to me is a separate issue entirely. You know, to judge her by, by her, what she's saying um, is not to say that she deserves to have that sort of security. I think that's completely ridiculous that, and it's very sad that that has to happen. Personally, um, I, you know, in my own um, community of Muslims, I am very outspoken about um, misogyny and, and, and this was part of the, the petition and part of our um, outreach to AN, which was to say, let's talk about misogyny, let's talk about patriarchy, but let's do it in a way that doesn't demonise Muslim women, that doesn't dehumanise them. Um, let's do it and, and, and look at, um, you, you know, there, there are ways to talk about this without reducing us to these categories of oppression um, and, and to do it in a respectful way. And and I personally, the, I have never had a backlash to my own, um, you know, uh, speaking out about misogyny in the name of Islam, for example. The biggest fear I have is Islamophobia. And for Muslims, that is by far what touches their lives in a real way every day. Really? Okay, really, really, really quickly. really quickly. And I don't want to diminish at all the fact that... Um, the fear that you're speaking about and the fact that it is very real for and for a lot of Muslim women in particular that there is fear from within their own communities if they step outside the line. But I just wanted to say that um, without comparing them too greatly, all women have that fear as well, you know, because what's at play there is quite clearly misogyny. You know, Anita Sarkeesian also has to have security details when she speaks anywhere because gamers think that she okay. should we, be we, harmed. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for that. Um, thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.